Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I remember when one or two of us accompanied Helen for that meeting with John F. Kennedy. She really got the ear of the president, and through that ear, she pumped a great deal of valuable information, and they responded to each other, and they reacted to each other. The adult years of Helen Keller, author, social activist, lecturer, and philosopher. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Helen Keller was powerfully portrayed in The Miracle Worker, the Academy Award-winning film starring Patty Duke and Anne Bancroft, that depicted how a seven-year-old deaf-blind child broke through the silent darkness and learned to communicate. But the events of Keller's adult life, which began at the turn of the 20th century, were no less astonishing. And according to friends and colleagues, Helen Keller comported herself with great dignity. As often as I was with her, I, I could never quite overcome in the same room with her a feeling of her presence, almost ethereal. She was usually very calm, ne never angry. Think of her as the animal child before her enlightenment. Anne Bancroft. Imagine that the how she evolved from that to this woman with the most perfect posture, this beautiful bearing. And there was always a smile, sort of, when she asked the questions, and then, and then it calmed when you answered the questions because she was listening all the time, listening to everything, curious about everything. I found myself infected with her uh, boundless enthusiasm, uh, with, with her uh, tremendous vitality and vivacity, with her vibrant uh, good humor. Interesting thing about Helen Keller is that how sensitive her touch was. Uh, somebody told me that uh, they were at a social uh, gathering and a line formed up 
to shake hands with Helen Keller. And this friend of hers did it. And then when she left the line, she said to another friend, look, I'm going around again and see uh, what happens. And immediately, of all of those handshakes, Helen Keller recognized her touch of her hand. The hands of those I meet are dumbly eloquent to me. The touch of some hands is an impertinence. I have met people so empty of joy that when I clasped their frosty fingertips, it seemed as if I were shaking hands with a northeast storm. Others there are whose hands have sunbeams in them, so that their grasp warms my heart. It may be only the clinging touch of a child's hand, but there is as much potential sunshine in it for me as there is in a loving glance for others. Of necessity, Helen Keller became attuned to aspects of life most of us overlook. Her ability to do so makes one wonder how much of the human experience we ordinarily race past without noticing. But even the acute sensitivity of some faculties could not fully compensate for those Helen lacked. Later in life, she talked candidly about her loss. It is not blindness or deafness that burns me in my dust. It is not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. Longingly, I think how much more good I might have done if I had only acquired natural speech. Longingly, I feel how much more good I could have done if I had acquired normal speech. Virtually never could Helen talk in public without an interpreter. But the impediment did not halt her from speaking out on her busy lecture schedule or in print about matters of social conscience. That's when she was fighting for labor unions in the United States. She believed in individuals' right to dignity. She did not like people living in poverty. She disliked child labor. It was a time when children were working in textile mills at the age of seven because they had little fingers and they were able to tie, uh, to tie the warp of, of the looms. And she, she knew that women were working long hours. Sometimes women were ready to have a baby, were still working, standing up by the looms for uh, you know, many, many hours every day. She, know, she knew that uh, the conditions in the mines were very unsanitary, that uh, the salaries were far too low and unable to support families. Denied much in life by her disabilities, Helen's period of political passion enabled her to join in the highly charged atmosphere of the day. Her radicalism was attributable in part to John Macy, a Harvard student who helped to edit Helen's autobiography. But Macy's greatest influence was on Annie Sullivan, 10 years his senior, whom he would marry in 1905. Helen graciously rejoiced, now I shall have two teachers.
in rural Rentham, Massachusetts, the three lived together happily for a time, with both Annie and John assisting Helen. In part because of the awkward arrangement, the marriage eventually soured and dissolved. But Annie wasn't the only one with a frustrated love life. Playwright William Gibson. There was a time when Helen wanted to elope with a man, Peter Fagan. Uh, the, the story broke in the local press because they had applied for a marriage license in Boston. 29-year-old Peter Fagan had been hired as a secretary to Helen. One evening in her study, he secretly proposed to Helen, then age 36. His love, she would write, was a bright sun that shone upon my helplessness and isolation. But when the Boston Globe reported the marriage plans, Helen's mother, visiting from Alabama, immediately banned Fagan from the house. Archivist Marguerite Levine. I believe that Helen, being a perfectly normal person, healthy, beautiful, intelligent, was entitled to know that aspect of human life. I believe he was truly in love with her and that she was truly in love with, with him because he made considerable effort to keep in touch with her. Mrs. Keller, who thought Helen too disabled for marriage, removed her to Alabama. But Peter Fagan turned up there undaunted. Helen made a date to elope with him that night and sat out on the porch all night with her suitcase, and he never showed up because earlier the, his, the brother, Warren, had intercepted Peter somewhere and driven him off with a shotgun. So then they went back and spent these six or seven or eight months of, uh, in which Helen's career sort of came to a standstill. What earthly consolation is there for one like me whom fate has denied a husband and the joy of motherhood? At the moment, my loneliness seems a void that will always be immense. After a time of healing, Helen and Annie resettled in Forest Hills, New York. They lived off donations by philanthropists as well as income from occasional lectures and royalties from Helen's books. But finances were always tight. Helen decided to accept an offer to star in a silent film entitled Deliverance, based on her life. Later, they appeared on the vaudeville circuit, where Helen and teacher would give a brief talk about overcoming disability. The presentation proved popular with audiences and managed to support the pair for several years. But Helen's rapport with the public would soon be put to better use. In 1924, she and Annie embarked on a railroad tour to give talks as a way to raise funds for the newly formed American Foundation for the Blind. They crisscrossed the nation, speaking before hundreds of gatherings and ultimately raising millions for the charity. The tours established Helen as a prominent national advocate for the disabled. President Franklin Roosevelt would write, whatever Helen Keller is for, I am for. During the Depression, she would use her prestige with federal officials to secure funds for the printing of braille books and the manufacture of special phonographs by which the blind could listen to recorded readings of literature. 5,000 of these talking book machines have been made. 
This is one of the most comfortable ways of reading that I know of and may be envied by those who have their own sight. The person who suggested this project and is responsible for it is Miss Helen Keller, not only the most outstanding sightless person in America, but one of the Republic's foremost citizens. Established by the U.S. Congress in 1931, the Talking Book Program offers the disabled free use of playback machines and recorded materials. Here, narrator Alexander Scorby reads from Lord Jim. His way back into the lapse of time and was speaking through his lips from the past. Chapter 5. Oh, yes. I attended the inquiry, he would say. Nearly 150,000 titles are available today in audio and braille from the network of regional libraries throughout America headquartered at the Library of Congress in Washington. On a visit there, Helen Keller gave tribute to the army of unpaid workers. I'm proud to be associated so beautifully with the work of the Braille volunteers. With the work of the Braille volunteers. That has brought such joy and light. That has brought such joy and light. Thousands of exiles on the dark. To thousands of exiles of the dark. Only on the gain of greater degree of independence of circumstances. Not only have they gained a greater degree of independence of circumstances, but they have been restored when they that they have been restored to their place in civilization through the power to read and write braille. Through the power to read and write braille. Lovingly, I shall leave it you and call down a blessing Upon river labors. Lovingly I salute you and call down a blessing upon your labors. Mm. Helen Keller would regard advocacy for the blind as her life's work. But the lecture schedule was especially wearing on Annie. In the 1930s, as she neared 70, Annie's health grew increasingly frail. Eye ailment she had battled since childhood left her totally blind in old age. In 1936, Helen's teacher, Anne Sullivan Macy, died. It was a blow from which her devoted companion would never fully recover. For a time, Helen seemed just numb. She had support from co-workers who had built a new home for her near Westport, Connecticut. And there was her secretary, Polly Thompson, a Scotswoman who would now serve as Helen's full-time companion. Little by little, Helen emerged from her sorrow at the loss of teacher. During World War II, she toured veterans' hospitals and would hold young soldiers who had been blinded and mutilated by war. 
Wherever Helen Keller went, her powerful presence gave hope to the disabled. Her British colleague, Eric Bolter. From Europe in the West to Japan in the East, she traveled. From Iceland in the North to New Zealand in the South, she went, contacting all those who could be of help to her. She journeyed often, as I knew, to the point of exhaustion, but never, never, ever relaxing her efforts to ensure that a new and better way of life would be provided for those who were in need. Helen Keller, one of the world's truly great women, arrives at Kingsford Smith Airport, Sydney, to begin an Australian-wide lecture tour. Out of her own darkness, she has brought light and hope and courage to tens of thousands of afflicted people. As guest of the government of Israel, the famous Helen Keller, blind, deaf, and dumb from babyhood, visits a village set apart for the blind. Miss Keller's visit marks a new era for the village. When she explains that segregation is bad for the blind, authorities act promptly. Seeing inhabitants are now being encouraged to settle there with the blind. For the first time since before the war, Helen Keller pays a visit to the people of Japan, this time as a guest of the United States government. In Tokyo and other cities, the entire population turns out to cheer this great American, left blind and deaf by an affliction. Back in the United States, Helen sought increased educational opportunities for sightless children and vocational opportunities for blind adults. Throughout the country, state commissions for the blind would be established, often at her urging. She didn't raise her voice. She didn't harangue. She spoke very quietly, very convincingly. I remember when one or two of us accompanied Helen for that meeting with John F. Kennedy. It was certainly not a brief getting together for a polite uh, exchange of remarks. She really got the ear of the president, and through that ear, she pumped a great deal of valuable information. And they responded to each other, and they reacted to each other. And I remember on that visit, too, she had a meeting with Caroline, who was then quite a young child. And Helen had the same effect on Caroline as she did on all children. All children trusted Helen. Although a global traveler, Helen Keller's limitations ultimately isolated her from much of the world. Dwelling in utter darkness and silence, her daily existence was often solitary and interior, her life's journey an inward path. In a way, it afforded her great stillness and peace. She had the enjoyment of the gift of silence, which I believe is precious to all of us. We need moments of silence, we need moments of reflections, we need moments where we can, you know, be in conversation with ourselves, if I can say. And I believe that Elaine had that luxury because of her infirmity. Do you think that that accounted for her heightened spiritual sensitivity? Definitely, indeed. You know, the questions that we're all asking ourselves, where do we come from? 
what are we doing here and where are we going? And I believe that was very, very much in Helen's mind. The firm rock on which all of Helen's work was based was her strong personal religious faith. She knew and loved and trusted and toiled with people of all beliefs. Yet her passionate belief, that which motivated her, her Christian faith, was one of the biggest factors in the impact that she made on all people whom she met. She was not flamboyant in her religious manifestations, but I think that the strength of her faith was there for all to behold. Helen Keller's perspective in mine, that here we are in school, and through our experiences, we are developing precisely in, in a state of freedom the kind of person we really want to be. The Reverend Clayton Priestnall was spiritual companion to Helen in her final years. He follows the Christian teaching of Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century mystic who saw this world as preparation for the afterlife. It was a philosophy with special appeal for Helen Keller. You see that everything that happens to an individual is the best thing that can happen to them insofar as their spiritual welfare is concerned. Each person is different. Each person has to be led in a different way and with different faculties and abilities. And apparently the divine providence saw that she could develop spiritually with these handicaps. The difficulties which blindness throws across our path are grievous. We encounter a thousand restraints. And like all human beings, we seem at times to be accidents and whims of fate. The thwarting of our deep-rooted instincts makes us feel with special poignancy the limitations that beset mankind. Swedenborg teaches us that love makes us free, and I can bear witness to its power of lifting us out of the isolation to which we seem to be condemned. When the idea of an active, all-controlling love lays hold of us, we become masters, creators of good, helpers of our kind. It is as if the dark had sent forth a star to draw us to heaven. One day I'd been playing uh, tennis in the morning, and when uh, that afternoon when I was visiting Helen Keller, I said to her that uh, I had had a game of tennis uh, in the morning. And then I added, now when we both get to the spiritual world, will you play tennis with me? And she laughed and beamed and she said, and golf too. I mean, that indicated how real the afterlife was to her. She, and she would have her hearing and her sight and could play tennis. And I think it's that, that knowledge that uh, created a kind of unique radiance and hopefulness. Most people measure their happiness in terms of physical pleasure and material possession. 
If happiness is to be so measured, I who cannot hear or see have every reason to sit in a corner with folded hands and weep. If I am happy in spite of my deprivations, if my happiness is so deep that it is a faith, so thoughtful that it becomes a philosophy of life, if, in short, I am an optimist, my testimony to the creed of optimism is worth hearing. A simple, childlike faith in a divine friend solves all the problems that come to us by land or sea. With this thought strongly entrenched in our inmost being, we can do almost anything we wish and need not limit the things we think. We may help ourselves to all the beauty of the universe that we can hold. For every hurt, there is a recompense of tender sympathy. Out of pain grow the violets of patience and sweetness. We invite needless suffering when we entertain an exaggerated idea of our own suffering. Why should we be spared the chastening rod which all mortals pass under? Instead of comparing our lot with that of those who are more fortunate than we are, we should compare it with the lot of the great majority of our fellow men. It then appears that we are among the privileged. Helen Keller once described herself as an optimist in spite of all. Although hardship stalked her from childhood and melancholy often came to cast its gloom, Helen repeatedly turned away despair. She attained understanding and acceptance, propelling her to great heights of achievement for herself and for others. The National Cathedral, Washington, D.C., June 1968. The children's choir from the Perkins School for the Blind has traveled from Boston to attend the memorial service for Helen Keller. Be strong, fear not, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap up as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, Observers in the full enjoyment of their bodily senses pity me, but it is because they do not see the golden chamber in my life where I dwell delighted. For dark as my path may seem to them, I carry a magic light in my heart. Faith the spiritual, strong searchlight illumines the way, and although sinister doubts lurk in the shadow, I walk unafraid toward the enchanted wood where the foliage is always green, where joy abides, where nightingales nest and sing, and where life and death are one in the presence of the Lord. 
an optimist in spite of all, Helen Keller's life story. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Jeff Whitehead and Bill Wangren. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Special thanks to John Corey Oliver, Wendy Sakakini, the American Foundation for the Blind, the Perkins School for the Blind, the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and National Public Radio. Music performance by Mark Adams and Sue Sharp. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, An Optimist in Spite of All, Helen Keller's Life Story, Part 2, is Humankind Program Number 76. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.